Hello, and welcome to Cool for Cats with me, Amy Hughes. We're here to invite you in for black coffee and a chat about our favorite band, Squeeze. In this mini episode, I'll be offering my thoughts and opinions on Miles Copeland's The Third, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, his autobiography from 2021. Uh, Normally, I wouldn't be doing a, a book review on a podcast, but I felt that this particular book had a lot to offer in the realm of squeeze information. So I'm going to keep it more focused on what squeeze has to do with Miles Copeland. There's a lot going on in this book because Miles has involved himself in so many aspects of show business, of the music business, got getting getting his start way back in the 70s, way back. So for purposes of this mini podcast, I'll be speaking more to uh, Miles's um, interactions with Squeeze and the outcomes and the ins and outs and outcomes and incomes of all of that. So what I'll first say is for those of the listeners who who are not familiar with Miles, um, he's a very interesting, colorful individual. I have never met Miles personally, uh, but about 30 plus years ago, I did have the opportunity to go to the what would be considered the quote-unquote offices of IRS records, which in central London, a lot of these offices, buildings, things like that, are called houses. So I was in Bugle House, and he references that uh, later on in his, in his memoir. So for the beginning portion of this, I'll, I'll give a very, very quick backstory because I believe a lot of people who are familiar with Squeeze and the sort of new wave punk rock or punk rock new wave, which came first, are familiar enough with Miles's um, personality, the way he has come through a lot of times in other people's storytelling quotes, what he's accomplished. And most people who are either in Miles's atmosphere, his environment, the business, have classified him as a very uh, unforgiving, tough as nails kind of person. And Maybe some of that has a little bit to do with his upbringing. His father uh, worked uh, for the CIA, and his mom was in British intelligence. And uh, so, you know, you have an interesting background right there. Um, He also was one of four children. He had a sister, Lenora, they called Lenny. And then... Most of you would know that his other two brothers are Stuart, who ended up being the drummer in the police, and Ian, Ian Copeland, who actually helped out um, very much in the beginning and then went on to become his own uh, businessman with his own booking agency in the U.S. But the family mostly kept in the early years their uh, existence around the Middle East and England. So Miles had a very unusual, I would say, 
very enlightening upbringing. And for that to work itself into his interests in music uh, in the 70s, once he got past uh, college, he actually came to the United States and went to college in Alabama. So he's had a very well-rounded sort of global perspective. And obviously with his parents and especially his father involved in government work, he was very, um, not so much in the know in his younger years because the Middle East was very, very different in the 60s and, and early 70s. So Miles was exposed to quite a lot of ethnicity backgrounds, to people, and I think that's probably what has helped him to be so straightforward and not kowtow to a lot of the um, business acumen that kind of sprung up. He was able to be one of those, in quotes, founding fathers. So with regards to Squeeze, Miles had started off by Uh, getting into the business, wanting it to do it from the ground up, and had seen a lot of bands. And he had come upon Squeeze kind of in left field. He, He took to them very well because he really obviously truly noticed that Chris and Glenn were the heart and soul. But he also noticed that Jules Holland also had a real character, a real personality. And for those of us who know Squeeze, we obviously know that that's pretty much true. And really wanted to take Squeeze under his wing and uh, sort of, I wouldn't say kind of become their model manager, sort of like Brian Epstein did with the Beatles, but he truly enjoyed the music that they were making. And there were a lot of bands out there who had come into Miles' circle in those sort of early 70s, mid-70s, and they weren't quite as impressed with Squeeze's um, sort of all-around good musicianship. Because if you remember, and Miles makes a point of this in his book, that a lot of it was anti-music. So the bands that he was into when he first started, he was into the sort of prog rock and had become friends um, with those people and had started Wishbone Ash. And Stuart, his brother, had become a drummer, very good one, and had been in a band called Curved Air. So Miles was able to work himself into that sort of entrepreneurship, managerial, come... I'm going to support you role. And whether or not other bands had dynamic personalities or he clashed with personalities um, in in some of the people he had to deal with, he really saw the essence of Different and Tilbrook being able to come together, give this band a solid foundation with their music. So that's where Miles was able to uh, step in and essentially start their uh, pathway to being able to be accepted by 
Not the people that uh, Miles may or may not have been working with, and that, and, and by that I mean the industry bigwigs or somebody super important in London. He was based in London, so he knew of a lot of the pub scene, the environment surrounding that. And so he, again, a lot of this was a DIY situation, especially with with squeeze. So he was the one who came up with the um the label for Deptford Fun City and Deptford in his mind and he knew was not a fun city. So he always had that little play on word thing going. So he does have a sense of humor. And the way he describes being involved with them is a lot of dedication to their um, sort of what they were going to dress like, were they going to have what we would now consider nowadays in, in the 21st century, a brand image. What could he do? And unfortunately, he couldn't do much. Um, he looks back on it as sort of the kind of guy that would roll his eyes and say, okay, guys, and he describes this in the book by giving them a couple of hundred pounds, and then Chris and Glenn would go off and, you know, buy outlandish clothes that had nothing to do with anything that was going to make a stage presence for the band. So he does speak highly of wanting to find, uh, at the start, a really, really good drummer, and he has a lot of high praise for uh, Gilson, which he felt was a presence, uh, a seasoned musician that the band really needed. I, I, I think then, and, and the way the thought and opinion I have is that, you know, he's got a couple of young kids. Let's bring Gilson in. He passed the audition and they were on their way. So he was essentially with Squeeze, this was sort of the building block of what would become Miles' future. And he does recall and describe in great detail a lot of the first gigs, um, wanting to bring them to America, getting that label major, I'm sorry, major label uh, signing which he was able to do with A&M Records um, against all odds. And I mean, that's a kind of a cliche, but again, a lot of the selling of this band was uh, the songwriting and the songs, which they were having a lot of problems with in the realm of understanding British music at that time. So they did that whole, you know, hard scrabble, we're going to play every gig we can get, although Miles did and his insight into American club scene. He was able to bring Ian into uh, that realm of helping to book um, clubs and gigs, etc. And um, the, the fun part, of course, again, was that by the time Miles had started up IRS Records, Ian was over in America in Macon, Georgia, with the FBI, which means actually Frontier Booking International. So the two of them are essentially able to corral the band into getting these gigs, uh, getting them a the A&M record. Miles was able to get the A&M record deal. And so it looked really good uh, from that perspective. And he does give a lot of praise 
to squeeze as a unit for helping to sow the seeds for basically of that time, any other band that was going to come to the States and really make a difference. Um, you know, he does, it, you know, he does have some regrets when he looks back at that time in the sort of 77 to 78 period and realizes that the guys were just doing the best they can. There's the oft told legendary story, especially we've heard it a lot from Chris Difford that they played at a club and there was a man and a dog and the man left. But anyway, uh, Miles tells it with a lot of straightforward humor. And the overall arc that I get from the way Miles tells his story is he does step back and look at the situations and realize he is really a rebel when it comes to his interest in music, uh, the bands that he wanted to sign later on. He put a lot of faith, and he did. He put a lot of faith into Squeeze. And one of the sticking points that a lot of people talk about as we're getting up to around argy-bargy time, around 1980, was he realized that um, because the stage presence wasn't really there, he encouraged Jules to come out and sort of be the master of ceremonies, making the introduction, knowing that Jules had that sort of, you know, kind of crazy sense of humor. And, and he saw that in Jules, and he um, really tried to make it a point to... Not put Jules above squeeze, but essentially to target that hidden gem in the band. And if you read into it, a lot of it kind of sort of backfired a bit. Because as they're getting into that point, Jules, although he's an excellent musician and has a way with his personality and the way he presents himself... There started to be a little bit of that sort of tension where you would imagine that the two most prominent people in the band, Glenn and Chris, would have most of the um, press. They would be the ones who would be speaking for the band because they were the songwriters. And Jules was sort of becoming an outsider and was not really into the sort of musical direction because you know his love if you're a squeeze fan you know his love is that whole new orleans jazz the boogie woogie piano style um that he perfected and as the tensions were kind of sort of mounting um he miles was getting a little bit of a sign from jules was that you know these guys they have integrity um, and you don't have to really make them superstars and throw a bunch of money at them. But Miles wanted these guys to succeed. And at one gig, that's what he did. And he gave them the money. And Jules had warned him beforehand saying, you know, don't sort of insult Chris and Glenn's uh, intelligence when it comes to um, their musicianship, but also the amount of let's, you know, let's put it bluntly cash that they're worth. So at one point, that's what happened. And Jules said, well, you know, if there, if the situation is going to be like this, if we're going to have issues like that, then I suggest uh, you become my manager. And 
will just, you know, walk away from squeeze as a unit. And in October of 1980, that's what happened. So after RG Bargy, the the dynamics changed. And in essence, that's when Miles stepped away from squeeze. And he had known that um, Jake Riviera, who was Elvis Costello's manager, had really shown an eye uh, for Squeeze. And also, by this time, Miles was heavily involved with his brother's band, um, you know, that, that little three-piece band called The Police. And Miles does admit now that he believes that there was some... You know, jealousy is like the wrong word to use in this uh, context, but he felt that, um, and he notes that they squeeze, and especially Chris and Glenn, believed that they were losing Miles' attention, his promotion, his managerial duties, uh, and they were being focused on the police. And, of course, for all of us who know of a certain age and generation, that's kind of what started to happen. So um, Costello's manager, Jake, a very flamboyant individual, kind of wanted to go right in there, just, you know, bust his way right in and take hold of Squeeze because he knew now that Miles was not there. Jules was not there. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Here's how it works. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And Miles was going to put his energies toward helping Jules, especially as a presenter. Um, and that became obviously the tube that he um, that he hosted with Paula Yates. However, at that time, Jay came in. There seemed to be, again, this misunderstanding or, or Jake's personality didn't quite mesh and they were a little bit rudderless. But let's face it, out of all of that came East Side Story and with, with Elvis's um, input into that situation, he remained very good mates with the band. And Glenn had worked with Elvis in 1980, uh, providing uh, a vocals on From a Whisper to a Scream. So the camaraderie was there. The managerial position that Miles had held just basically fell away. And in retrospect, you can understand because I think Miles wanted to broaden his horizons. He felt that he had put a lot of effort into Squeeze and he wasn't getting the love from, and, and this, not the band, but from the record company. He had a lot of great people with him at IRS who were out there, um, you know, basically plugging away at radio stations. Again, you got to remember this was like, again, the late 70s, early 80s, 
who would be, you, you would have a radio promoter guy and a label promotion guy in all the major cities or regions of the United States um, going to the local radio stations and saying, you got to play this and you got to play this and you got to play this. Um, certainly at the um, summertime, late 81, 1981, MTV appeared and that obviously uh, gave more visual identification to the new squeeze and it also helped the police. So around this sort of swirlingness, Miles discusses in his book um, a lot of the other acts that he was able to sign, the dynamics and the history and his interaction with a lot of these um personalities if you know for want of a better word he um really really loved the go-go's but again there was a lot of stuff that happens um and then later in the bangles where there's just a lot of misunderstanding and and miles was a person who was going to go in there and fight for you know whatever band it was even if it was like bands that were just too much to handle, even from a managerial point of view. Miles went in there, especially with bands like um, The Cramps, who really, you know, you look at, at the stage presence, go back and look at a couple of, you know, YouTube videos or listen to the music. Uh, the same like, say, with like um, The Dead Kennedys. All those bands just could not find a foothold. So Miles branched out and he was able to use um, MTV to his advantage. He was actually able to do um, his whole Cutting Edge series, um, which I'm not quite sure. Maybe uh, a, a few listeners could let me know. So send me an email that it might be available now on uh, Blu-ray or DVD or some other version other than VHS, because that's the only way I was able to find out. And... Um, by that time, around 1985, Jules had come back into the into the realm of squeeze, of course, for Cosi Fan Tutti Frutti. So a lot of that area with those bands coming up, REM as well, Ian was able to contribute a lot because of his um, geographical location in the United States. So Miles and Ian were really a force to be reckoned with. Um, and then... Mild goes and, and sort of talks about all the other sort of um, goodwill and some, you know, really weird stuff that happens being called in to talk about uh, government intervention and, and helping to understand uh, the way that the economy in Britain worked or something that because of his obvious lineage to his father, how do we work with people, you know, in the Middle East? Um which Miles, in his um, now in his sort of mature years, finds it quite amusing. Um, but he never seems to come off to me in these pages as someone who um, obviously was not a very um, weak individual who stood up for the people that he believed in, wanted to do them right, even possibly when the odds were against you. And that is how, in a lot of ways and avenues, he took to squeeze. Now, he does take task, you know, for certain uh, ways, um, especially when he talks about remembering events that took place. I don't know how Miles 
remembers all this stuff in the way that he does. It's, it is quite amusing. But, you know, he, in a minor way, took to task um, some remembrance of Chris Difford that got kind of mixed up. And he, in a way, chastises Chris for saying that because Miles says, you know, basically it didn't happen that way. It happened this way. And I know that for sure. And you don't want to disagree with Miles Copeland, right? So... All in all, I would say that if you have only known about Miles in that time period, if you have read about things um, in his later years after the police broke up, he um, was basically Sting's manager for many, many years, and his way of being able to come across as someone you don't mess with I think in a lot of ways that could be quite old school and turn a lot of people off. And some of it could be manufactured, as Miles kind of sort of admits. You know, he's kind of playing the game, um, which he ended up being very good at. But he also has um, high vision for a lot of music, and that turned into a lot of um, global kind of music from the Middle East and um, world music, as as we would call it, something that um, Peter Gabriel has espoused upon um, as much. So in conclusion, I would say that this book is relevatory as far as if Miles admits that he comes off as, you know, a, but, a, a butthead and hard to get along with, then that's your opinion. I, however, kind of went into this with, like, no other reviews. I, I didn't want to really see what anybody else had ever said. There's a couple of reviews, you know, on the book jacket, but they're from industry insiders and people that he worked with. And a lot of them are very effusive about the way that he was able to handle himself. So if there's... Any way that you would um, be able to grab this book off of Amazon or go to your local library, I would I would highly recommend it because, again, it does offer a lot of unique insights into his his way of living, the way that he dealt with bands. Um, you know, there's there's not a lot of detail because Miles at his age now, I believe he's about like 75 or so, has to cover a lot of ground. So if you want something extraordinarily detailed about Squeeze, you really won't find it, but you will find um, insightful anecdotes and get a better understanding of Miles, how he grew up, what he did to get basically where he was with Squeeze and is today. So again, the book is called uh, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business, Miles A. Copeland III. And again, if you have any opinions of yourself, you know, from you guys about what you think Miles is like. Has anybody ever met Miles, my podcast listeners, or know of any interactions that you might want to sort of drop in? Please do. You can find us on the Facebook and Twitter pages we have out there and our feeds at uh, Cool for Cats Pod. Definitely drop me a line. Uh, feel free to basically speak out and and give what you believe is to be an honest opinion about the man. So having said all that in this mini podcast, 
We'll be back again soon. We're going to have some new episodes coming up, and I'm going to get some great interviews. I got a few people in my back pocket that I'm interested in talking to, and we will see you again soon.